Well, let's open this ancient book once again and hear from the ancient words that the Apostle Peter wrote not only to his generation but to every generation of the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, as we continue a series, Resident Aliens. Last Sunday, Crosswalk Adult Bible Fellowship studied this text, and very quickly, someone was able to identify the main idea of the passage. It's a good idea, actually, when you're preparing to preach a sermon to come up with the main idea of your text. It's a good idea, actually, when studying God's Word for yourself to try to come up with the main idea of the text. To ask yourself, how do these sentences and paragraphs fit together? What is the author saying in one sentence, if possible? Often, usually, you'll come up with your own words to summarize what the passage is saying in one sentence. But occasionally, the inspired author will state the main idea, and you just use his words. And so it is here in the second half of 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. That's it. That's the main idea of the text. And everything else that Peter will say through the end of the chapter fleshes out that main idea. He'll explain what he means. He'll give us a reason. He'll give us a specific for instance. And he'll end with the example of our Lord Jesus. But everything that he's going to say in the verses that follow fits under that rubric, that one main idea. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the king as the supreme authority or, verse 14, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. God instituted human government to restrain evil and to promote good, virtuous, orderly living, to punish foreign and domestic wrongdoers to make it possible for ordinary people to flourish in the ordinary business of life. And so, when God's people submit to human authorities, the king, the governors, the city councilmen, the mayors, the police officers, we are honoring God who instituted human government. Ah, but what if the government abandons its God-given role? What if the government starts to reward the evil and punish the good? What then? What is the Christian's obligation under those circumstances? Now, I'm not talking about government authorities who sin. We're all sinners. I'm not talking about authorities who make mistakes. We all make mistakes. I'm talking about a situation where the government rejects its God-given role 
as a servant of God and a servant of the people and actually declares war on godliness. What then? Well, it depends. We in the 21st century West have some options that Peter's first readers did not have. They lived under tyranny. We live under government of, by, and for the people. And so when government wanders astray, we can try to persuade a majority of our fellow citizens to vote the bums out, to change the government. We can appeal to the courts when the executive branch overreaches, as our church and other churches did a few years ago. We can, as in the civil rights movement, peacefully and in an orderly fashion disobey unjust laws when the government has gone astray. And even in the first century, under Roman rule, under Caesar Nero, Peter's call to submit to human authority was not absolute. In Acts chapters 4 and 5, Peter and the other apostles were told by the authorities to stop preaching. Well, they kept preaching and said, we must obey God rather than men. So what he writes here in verses 13 and 14 is not meant to be an absolute. However, Peter's default and our default should be to honor God by honoring the human authorities that he has placed over us. Many of you know that back in the 1980s, I participated in Operation Rescue. That was a, a ministry in which mostly Christians, but some other unbelieving citizens, would go to an abortion clinic and sit outside on the sidewalk, praying and singing hymns so that people could not get into the building and do their bloody business that day. And there would be sidewalk counselors who would try to engage with women who had come to the clinic and encourage them to choose life. Typically, we were arrested and charged with disorderly conduct or criminal trespass. And on one occasion, there were about 50 of us in a Pennsylvania courtroom on trial for a rescue. The uh, prosecutor and our attorney had struck a deal where three of us would be allowed to speak to the court instead of all 50, and in exchange, the prosecutor would uh, ask for a minimal fine. I was to be one of the three who spoke on behalf of the group. And when it came time to swear me in, the judge said, uh, let's bring a Bible. And other officers of the court started looking around, and they couldn't find a Bible. And the judge said, here, we're supposed to start a trial, and there's not a Bible in the courtroom, and about 40 pro-lifers held up the Bibles that they had brought with them that day. And so I began my words to the court by saying, Your Honor, you just saw a demonstration that we are Bible people. And so you are unlikely to see most of us in your courtroom for any other reason. We are law-abiding people. 
went on to explain why when the law is unjust, God's people may be compelled to break that law. Why does this matter? Why should our default be submission to government authorities? Well, Peter answers in verse 15. This is his reason for his main idea. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Your pagan neighbors, Peter knows, are primed to criticize you. Your God-fearing, Christ-following lifestyle rebukes them, and so they're going to look for any and every reason, usually foolish and ignorant reasons, to criticize you. Don't make it easy for them. Be a model citizen in the way you respect their property, in the way your children behave in the neighborhood, in the way you are ever ready to help neighbors in need, in the way you disagree with people you think are wrong, in the way you are not quick to respond to insult with insult. Represent Jesus well. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote, Oh, brethren, what abundance of good works are before us, and how few of them we undertake to do. I know the world expects more of us than we do of ourselves, but if we cannot answer the expectations of the unreasonable, let us do what we can to answer the expectations of God, of our own consciences, and of all just men. For it is the will of God that with well-doing we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God calls on us, His people, to be happily honoring human authority for the Lord's sake and for the testimony of his church. This story is so remarkable that I want to make sure I don't leave anything out, so I'm going to read it. It comes from Open Doors Ministry, a ministry to the persecuted church who said that Chinese government officials became so fed up with the high rates of crime, drug addiction, and sickness in one county that in the mid-1990s they turned for help to the only model citizens in the area. Christians. Now you know enough about China to know that this is remarkable. The official government line is that Jesus was a myth, he never existed, and that Christians are unpatriotic troublemakers, but we had to admit, said one official who wanted to remain anonymous, that these people in this area were a dead loss because of their addiction to opium. Their addiction made them weak and sick. They would go to one of their pagan priests who would require animal sacrifices of such extravagance that the people became poor. And because they were poor, they stole from each other. And law and order deteriorated. It was a vicious cycle that no amount of government propaganda could break. We noticed, however, that in some villages in that county, these people were prosperous and peace-loving. There was no drug problem or stealing or other social order problems. Households had a plentiful supply of pigs, oxen, and chickens. So we commissioned a survey to find out why these villages were different. And to our astonishment and embarrassment, 
we discovered a key factor was these villages had a majority of Christians. Officials launched a daring experiment in 1998, the likes of which would have been unthinkable in China 10 years previously. I don't know if it would be unthinkable today, but they sponsored Christians to go into the troubled villages and share their faith. They started out picking the worst village, which had 240 people, 107 of whom were addicted to opium. Christians were bussed into the village at government expense. The villages were herded together by the police and made to listen to the testimonies of the Christians. A year later, there were 17 converts in that village. They began to grow rich because they stopped spending money on drugs. Each of the 17 converts had enough to own sewing machines and start small businesses. And by early 2002, 83 of the villagers were Christians and the prosperity had spread. The government officials said, we are delighted with the results and have been extending this tactic to other villages since then. It is the Lord's will that you put to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Wait a minute, we might think. Didn't Christ set me free? I read in the Gospels and in the Epistles about tremendous freedom from tyranny of every kind. I'm a citizen of heaven. Why should I have to submit to human authorities? Well, I'll give you two answers, one Ken's and one Peter's. My answer, which I think is a biblical answer, is that although my citizenship is in heaven, I still pay taxes in Lake County. I still have obligations and rights in this city, this state, this nation, that don't go away because I'm a Christian. I'm a citizen here, too. Peter's answer comes in the next verse. Verse 16, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Yes, Christ has set you free. Free to serve God. You're not free to drive your car as fast as you want. You're not free to cheat on your taxes. You're not free to defraud your neighbors. We knew a lady back in Denver who kept cats in her apartment even though she had signed a lease agreeing to no pets. And this is what she said. I'm a Christian. My landlord is not. I don't have to do what he tells me to do. No, no, Peter would say. You are free, free to be a servant of God, to honor him. And he says to honor human authorities. I used the word default a couple times already. Our default, our inclination, our desire, our first choice is wherever possible, to whatever extent possible, we will submit to human authority. And so this paragraph is summed up in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and then back to where he began. Honor the king. Next, Peter is going to give his readers and us 
a specific for instance that applied to many of his first century readers when in verse 18 he says, Slaves, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. American Christians can hardly read these words without thinking of the kind of slavery that was, is a blot on our history. But the slavery that Peter is talking about was not race-based, lifelong bondage. It was not slavery that resulted in someone kidnapping the slave, shipping him across the ocean to where he would be tradable, sellable property as long as he lived. Slavery in the first century was a kind of economic arrangement that was very common. According to some estimates, up to a third of the population of the Roman Empire, at least in urban areas, were slaves. Slaves could be better educated than their masters. They could rise to positions of enormous responsibility in the household. They could own property. They could acquire enough money to purchase their freedom, although some chose not to, but to stay in that relationship because of the security that it offered in contrast to um, piecemeal work uh, under other circumstances. So it's a different kind of slavery. In fact, some of you may be looking at translations of the Bible that use the word servants instead of slaves. Now, none of this is to say that slavery, even back then, was no big deal. In his letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul said to slaves, if you're able to win your freedom, by all means, do so. Good thing. And here, Peter envisions that some Christian slaves might be suffering, and not for doing right, but for, I mean, not for doing wrong, but for doing right. Maybe the master told them to lie, and they wouldn't lie, and they got punished for it. Maybe the master came up with a dumb idea, they followed through on it, and when it didn't work out as they knew it wouldn't, he blamed them for it. Whatever the circumstances, they were suffering for doing right. Now, if a 21st century Christian employee is mistreated, once again, we have options that uh, might not have been available to Peter's first readers. We can usually change jobs. We can unionize. We can assert our legal rights. And by the way, one reason that we have these options is because the gospel transforms culture. And although it took a lot longer than it should have for Christendom to finally do away with slavery, eventually it happened. And where 
the Christian message has affected culture, we have some of these options available now. But even Peter's first readers had a choice. How were they supposed to respond to unjust treatment? Well, the answer comes in a key phrase there in verse 19. They're submitting because they're conscious of God. Do you see that at the end of verse 19? They're conscious of God. The Christian slave in the first century, the Christian employee in the 21st century, can, when unfairly treated, reason, God is my true master. And if I can please him in my work, that's what ultimately matters. They can reason, God is sovereign. And I know that nothing comes into my life without first passing through his hands. And that includes unfair treatment. They can reason, God is just. And in this life or the next, the scales of justice will be balanced. Conscious of God. Now, by the way, an aside... Peter is not giving a pass to harsh masters. He's addressing those who suffer unjust treatment. He would have agreed, I'm sure, with James, who in our Bibles just a few pages earlier says this, A word to you arrogant rich. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers that you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter-than-usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good people. Christian slaves could, Christian employees can, hope in God's justice. And while waiting, live a default lifestyle of submission to authority, conscious of God. Now Peter didn't always see it this way. We read in the Gospels that when his master told his disciples that he was going to be unjustly executed, Peter exploded. No way. Not going to happen. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he went to the cross, when the cops laid hands on Jesus, Peter whipped out his sword and cut off a guy's ear. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. Something happened to Peter. Peter had to have his internal compass reset to write like this. You know what I mean? A woman bought a new car with high-tech features. The first time she drove it in the rain, she turned a knob that thought would turn the windshield wipers on, but she got a message on the dash that said, um, drive car 360 degrees. 
She didn't know what that meant, so when she got home, she got out the manual and discovered that when she meant to turn on the windshield wiper, she turned off the car's internal compass. And to fix it, the car needed to be driven in a complete circle, headed north, and then the compass reset. Well, some of us, like Peter, need to have our internal compass reset so that we are not so committed to asserting our rights as we are committed to asserting the lordship of Jesus. So that we don't blow up when we are treated unfairly. So we don't jump on it when somebody says, you could sue and make a pile of money. Sometimes we're supposed to speak up, speak out. There are times, especially in, in our society, where it's right to assert your rights for your own sake and for others' sake. But it is all too easy, human beings that we are, to confuse self-assertiveness with righteous indignation. Especially, especially in our own time. I saw a book title that says a mouthful. Here's the title. Generation Me, why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled, and more miserable than ever before. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. To this you were called. That's what Peter writes. To this you were called. This default, this lifestyle of submission to authority is not just for a few unfortunate slaves. It's for all Christ followers. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In verses 24 and 25, I'm going to save until the next time we come to the Lord's table. There, Peter talks about the substitutionary suffering of Jesus. Most of the text is talking about the exemplary suffering of Jesus. There is a unique suffering in which he died once for all, for all sinners, all sin of all time. Unrepeatable, unique. But there's also a sense in which the life and suffering death of Jesus are an example for his people. He committed no sin, verse 22 says. He did not repay evil for evil. No deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't lie to his landlord about cats. When, verse 23, they hurled their insults at him. Phony, blasphemer, bastard, they called him. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Think of the threats that he could have made. The one who commanded wind and waves could have sent upon his foes tornadoes and tsunamis. The one 
who cast a legion of demons into a herd of pigs that drowned themselves could have cursed his opponents with devilish torment and suicide. I remember when I was a kid, my pastor in the middle of a sermon burst into song. I'm going to try it. You can tell my throat is a little iffy here. But the pastor said, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. He made no threats, but he trusted his father and his father's justice. And when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not quick to assert our rights, but quick wherever possible to submit to authority because God has placed authority over us, then we are imitating His trust and we're honoring Him and we're honoring His Father. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Peter knew that this does not come naturally. And it doesn't come naturally to you and me, this lifestyle of submission to authority. But when we do, when we live this vision as resident aliens in this world, we demonstrate that there is something supernatural about us that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus is at work in us. Why are you here? What do you want? Said the Soviet captain to a little boy in front of his desk. The boy, just 12 years old, conquered his fear, got his voice under control, and said, Captain, you are the one who put my parents in prison. Today is my mother's birthday, and every year I have gotten her a flower for her birthday. But since my mother taught me to love my enemies and to repay evil with good, I've brought this flower for you to give to the mother of your children. Would you take it home and Tell her and them about my love and the love of Jesus. This captain had witnessed, without being moved, the beating and torture of Christians. But this boy's submission, loving spirit of following in the footsteps of Jesus did something to him. He had tears in his eyes when he came around the desk and gave this boy a hug. And his life was changed. He couldn't arrest Christians anymore. And it wasn't long before he himself was arrested. And a few weeks after this encounter with this 12-year-old boy, he found himself in a prison cell with some Christians who he himself had arrested. He told them the story 
of his encounter with this boy and told them that it was his honor and privilege to be in prison with them. Father, I trust that the point of the story is crystal clear. That the kind of life Peter calls us to, the kind of life you call us to, the kind of life that our Lord Jesus exemplified, is something we cannot do unless you do a supernatural work of grace in our hearts. And if you do, the gospel message will have integrity with a watching world, will melt hearts, will change lives, and we will give you all the praise and glory in eternity that you have been pleased to use, unworthy us, for your own name's sake. Amen. We stand for Peter's benediction. May the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, himself Restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all his people said, Amen.